Hi, it's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and it's post-Easter, and you would think things are going to settle down a little bit, but of course not, because this is really basically the kickoff of super festival season, and French Quarter Festival is about to kick in, and Emily Madeira, who runs the show, is going to be with us uh, this week, and she's going to give us a little bit of a clue as to what's going on, and I'm fascinated in particular about the new talent that she's going to have available. So here we go. I know we can make it. I know that we can. I know darn well. We can work it out. Emily Madeira is here with us, so we're going to get the full scoop on how things are going this year with this big year, 40th. Seems like a lot of people having 40th and 50th anniversaries around now. I think there must have been something happening around the time when we all got started that um, is of note uh, in terms of a kind of an explosion in the whole cultural scene in the city. And you must uh, you be certainly right. part- the 70s and 80s were just, you know, stewing over with creativity. And and the result of it is now a continuing trend for um, widespread creativity. And, you know, what I, I can't help but think of as one of the most creative places on the globe. And I'm from New York. And so we brag about it up there. But it's a whole different ball game. It's a marketplace up there. Here it is really some kind of nursery and ongoing legacy and just hotbed of inno- innovation. I mean, we still have a lot of um, new work, which is the thing I kind of want to focus on with French Quarter Festival, because, you know, in addition to the fact that you definitely focus on regional talent, you also present a lot of new acts. And uh, for somebody like me, who's always been a big music lover, but doesn't get out as much as she used to, um, I look to your festival and others like you for um, kind of a bellwether as to what's out there that I'm missing out on. So, you know, a guy like Devel Crawford, for example, I just happened to know about him from circumstance. Um, not everybody does, and he's a phenomenal talent and um, and so, so many others. So tell me a little bit about your 40th anniversary, what's different, what you're focused on, and then let's let's talk about some of the new talent. Sure, I'd love to, and thanks for having me. Yes, we are um, looking forward to celebrating an incredible weekend and 40th anniversary. You know, we were founded by Dutch Morial and a group of um, residents and business owners that had suffered through some pretty extensive road work in preparation for the World's Fair. And uh, that probably sounds very familiar today. I know as so many people are navigating through that. But it really, you know, the the, the first festival was um, really meant to be a local celebration and an opportunity to bring folks back into the French Quarter 
um, to support the businesses in the Vue Carré and to celebrate our local culture and do that in a way that it provided an economic benefit. Um, and that really remains true 40 years later. We focus 100% on local talent. And the way that we define that is Louisiana, but certainly um, a primary focus on the New Orleans region. You know, most of the artists who play on our stages could walk or ride their bikes uh, pretty easily to the stages that they play on. And with over 270 acts, you know, I really think that that's such a testament to just the wealth and depth of talent that we have here in the city. It really is incredible. Um, so I have to hand it to Greg Schatz and our entertainment committee. You know, they really have the incredible task of booking the talent. Um, and it really is a striking a balance every year. You know, we want to make sure that we are celebrating and paying homage and enjoying our living legends and the perennial favorites that we look forward to every year. Um, you know, we've got the Dixie Cups coming back again this year. We've got Irma Thomas on the riverfront. Um, but also making sure that, you know, part of what we are here to do is to identify up and coming talent um, and really provide a showcase to local working musicians. So um, they do try to, to, to make an effort to um, identify uh, rising talent and even young talent. We've got two stages dedicated to youth. Um, you know, we have the Ernie's Schoolhouse stage, which we launched a few years ago in collaboration with the Homer Plessy School. And that stage is open Saturday and Sunday and features all K through 12 talent. So it's a really fun way to come and see some young musicians play. Um, we've also got the New Orleans Jazz National Historical Park kids stage. Um, and that is really focused around our, our young audiences, um, but oftentimes it features young artists as well. So, um, you know, we're just incredibly blessed to have a city that um, is so creative um, and we make sure to do our best to bring an exciting and diverse and dynamic lineup every year. I think they've knocked it out of the park this year. I'm really looking forward to getting out there and hopefully taking in a few sets and being able to enjoy the music around me. So I think that's one of the things that really stands out is the diversity of the music, you know, from really uh, um, older uh, legacy forms of music to the most contemporary. And I'm sad to have lost Kid Jordan, who was about the most contemporary of the contemporaries. And yeah. uh, but he's, we still have uh, many of his siblings and uh, around to uh, keep that tradition going. But um, yeah, the range is just uh, staggering. And I don't, I really, I mean, you do see that in a city like New York or LA, but it's its not homegrown necessarily. It, it's its exporting that talent from elsewhere and, and congratulations to them and thankful for them to present the work and uh, including our work. But um, to have it right here at home base is just such an incredible privilege. Why don't you give me a little bit of a, I, I know you don't want to play favorites in any way, but give me sort of a little sampling of some of the acts that you think are, um, you know, especially new for this year or sure. uh, are just are acts that people shouldn't miss, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. 
Um, you know, we have uh, Flag Boy Giz, um, who is that that is going to be a festival debut, which we're very excited about. Um, D1 is another. Um, D1 will be playing at the WWL Esplanade in the Shade. And Big Frida, you know, she's such a superstar. Um, I can't believe it, but she hasn't uh, played a French Quarter Festival yet. So we really? are really excited. Oh. The Soul Rebels, wow. you know, they're incredible and play year over year. They're going to be doing uh, a set together featuring Big Frida. So that will be- That's going to um, be a monster. Exciting. Just a plain cold monster. That's going to be a monster. <laughs> Yeah, and Samantha Fish um, is another debut. Samantha Fish, uh, of course, is a blues musician. Uh, she'll be playing on the Vita Beer stage uh, right before the Soul Rebels and Big Frida. So it's going to be incredible. And, you know, I think we really do rely on our, um, you know, the expertise that our entertainment committee bring. We have folks like Eric B who have been stage managing for, I think, at least 30 years at French Quarter Festival. He's, of course, a musician in his own right. Um, and, and so many others who um, really have their finger on the pulse of the, the music scene here in New Orleans. And, and we're just grateful to be able to incorporate that. You know, I think what I love about this festival is not only does it feature local musicians, but we are committed to being accessible. We're free and open to the public. It's a block party. It's a really fun family reunion block party. And so you can kind of explore in a way that is a little bit more challenging at other festivals. And there really is diversity, not, not only in terms of the music genres, but in how you can experience the music. I mean, some people really wanna see the high energy, big shows out on the riverfront with the big crowds, um, but you can also wander down Royal Street and you can check out some incredible traditional jazz right in the heart of the neighborhood on Bourbon Street and Royal Street. Um, or duck into the songwriter stage at the Jazz Museum at the Mint. Um, Joy Clark was a debut last year. I believe she'll be playing um, this year again, and, and that's going to be incredible. And, you know, she's one of the artists that I've discovered through the festival. Um, you know, I think last year, of course, we're so busy here actually producing and running the event. Um, we don't get to sit down and really take in a full set, but you know, there's so many moments where I just have to pause and, and take notice. Um, you know, last last year we had a, a little bit of a rain shower on Sunday and I ran over to the um, New Orleans Historic uh, Collection um, and they needed some, some help getting ready. And Evermore Nest was playing. I'd never heard them before, um, but really um, incredible songwriter, incredible ensemble with strings. And so, you know, you can go from that to the Louisiana Fish Fry stage, which features brass music all day long. Um, and so it really is um, a fun way to be able to explore, I think. Um, and, I, and I think that's another thing I, I didn't mention that, but it definitely is the variety of stage setting. Um, from the the as you say the smaller and more intimate and then the the just full out blast of music right on the riverfront there's nothing like that so yeah like and you know they all have you music. know a little bit of a unique culture within all of those areas you know you can 
Um, go to the Jazz Museum at the Mint and there's three stages down there, one indoor and two outdoors. And that's a little bit more of a, a laid back vibe. We have folks that, you know, are diehard Jazz Museum fans. And of course you can actually see the museum um, as well. So incorporated into um, our festival is, is of course entrance to see all of their um, exhibits. So if you haven't explored the Jazz Museum, this is a great way to be able to do it without an admission and to you know, um, check out some of the gems here in the neighborhood. And you um, also generate, you also um, support the mission, as I've heard it from the New Orleans uh, Historic Collection, of reminding people what the French Quarter really is all about. You know, everybody thinks of it as Bourbon Street, but it's so much more. And so uh, again, this, this venue, this event is such a great opportunity to check out many of the venues. I mean, this Louisiana State Museum is incredible for what it includes on so many different levels, the Jazz Museum, the Historic New Orleans Collection. You could go on, Madame John's Legacy is, is kind of, you know, in, in between moments, and then Herman Grima House, which is, you know, one of the old residences. It's, it goes on and on. It's just, it's, it's just you're you're surrounded not just by the music and and the food we haven't mentioned yet. We have to get into that, um, but also uh, by all of these different cultural opportunities that That's are right. just. You know, we always talk about how this is a, an incredible opportunity to explore the architecture and this most unique historic neighborhood in the country. And so often, you know, that is aimed at visitors, but I think it's a fantastic reminder for locals alike that this is um, a really wonderful time to enjoy your city. And we were looking back at our archives of, of photos as we prepared for the 40th anniversary, and we saw a picture of the opening day parade in 1985 with a beautiful banner. And the tagline was, the French Quarter is for everyone. And it just felt like such the perfect sentiment um, and, and so appropriate still today. So you'll see that popping up uh, throughout the French Quarter and throughout the festival this year. But I think it is a great reminder that we've got this um, really important gem and it's a really beautiful way to honor the Bucure and celebrate it and to explore all of the restaurants and shops and museums and, and music um, that the festival has to offer. And so that uh, brings us to um, how you're going to sustain yourself while you're trying to enjoy all of this and, and, and keep your stamina up. And that goes to the food, uh, which is such a big part of the festival. A any festival that we do in New Orleans has food based. I love my favorites are the ones that are like chicken wings or French fries or some crazy, just narrow range of food. But you've got it all. So give me a little bit of a taste of the menu. Yeah, well, we've got over 60 food vendors here. So this is, you know, a really unique opportunity. You can check everything out from Yakamain to fine dining. Um, we have brick and mortar restaurants within the French Quarter that really bring out their finest dishes. And it's an incredible way to um, check out some of those um, dishes as well. And then we've got folks that only come out for festivals. Um, you know, Cafe Dauphine, Tia Henry does an incredible job. Her restaurant, unfortunately, hasn't yet reopened um, since the pandemic, but she comes out to French Quarter Festival every, every year. Um, and she is one of my first stops 
<laughs> on the menu. Um, but we've also got a lot of new vendors this year. So, um, you know, Kenneth Spears, who's our food and beverage director, does a great job trying to um, identify how the New Orleans culinary scene is evolving and growing and making it sure. It is. That it's absolutely yeah. appalling. You know, I, I tend to work my offices in my home on Esplanade, and we've had a, a major project that we've been trying to finish this strategic plan for the creative industries. And in the meantime, um, I, I'll, I'll get out for something and I'll, I'll come down a street and I'll see three new restaurants I never saw before. And I'll say, oh my God. Or, you know, Reed, I, I really give Ian McNulty um, uh, a tr tremendous credit for how great a job he does of identifying what's going on that's new that's out there. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Absolutely. I mean, we've got sort of the traditional um, dishes that you might expect, like Lassion's meat pie. We've got patents out here, and they bring an incredible combination plate with crawfish sacks, um, oyster patties, and crawfish beignets. Um, but then we also have everything from African food to Greek food to uh, Vietnamese food. So Nine Roses um, will be out here, Bao Mi, which is a, a new sort of fusion Vietnamese um, restaurant, um, will be here serving their fare. Um, and uh, we also will have Addis Nola coming back. That was another uh, new vendor last year. So there's definitely something for everybody, no matter, you know, what your preferences are in terms of your taste buds, or if you're looking for healthy food, we, we work with Eat Fit Nola as well. So you can look for that little logo on the board if you're looking for something lighter that won't weigh you down for the day. You also have two other things, special events and um, the after hours program. I didn't really know about that. And I was just doing a little bit of, you know, reconnoitering in your uh, website and I saw yeah. both of those uh, items. So, uh, and one of them, it was um, something about, uh, it's a STEM kind of competition for kids. That sounded fascinating. And then um, again, the, uh, the after hours events at, at, at some of the clubs. So yeah. just a little taste of that. Well, we are committed to being uh, an inclusive, family-friendly festival, uh, and Chevron, our partner, has done an incredible job of curating the Chevron Children's STEM Zone. So they bring out partners from throughout the region that are focused on providing really fun, engaging, hands-on activities for children to learn about uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. And this year's theme is the STEM Olympics. So. Um, you can, you know, definitely expect that to be a very high energy, fun activity. Um, we've got the kids stage right across from there, and that will be open Saturday and Sunday um, of this week. Um, but we, you know, we also want to make sure that after our music and our stages are quiet at 8 p.m., there's an opportunity for folks that want to keep the festing going, uh, keep the music going after hours. So we launched the FQF After Dark series uh, last year, actually. Um, and we partner with venues from across the city. So we're going to be working with um, the Four Seasons. Uh, they actually are going to be hosting uh, Ivan Neville, which is another festival debut uh, Thursday and then Friday. Oh, she's a debut. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I. You would think that with over 200, 270 acts that we could book everybody we wanted every year, but it's just incredible, um, you know, how much 
talent there is here. Yeah. And it seems like every year our wish list is larger than we can um, address. But we've we've got uh, John Michael Bradford and the Vibe uh, playing at Three Keys at the Ace Hotel. And then uh, Boyfriend will be at House of Blues. I'm excited about that one. And then Tipitina's is going to be hosting Eric Lindell on Saturday. I'm sorry, on Sunday, our closing day. So all of those shows happen after hours. Um, and you can find information on our website at frenchquarterfest.org. You can also download our app. So with so much food and so much music, um, it's a really great idea to kind of look at the schedule ahead of time and see if there's anything that you make want to make sure to prioritize and you can build your own schedule there so that can help you navigate but of course you got to leave yourself open to new experiences and spontaneity as well well let's do the hours and the parking let's do the the navigation uh, we got to make sure, sure. That, that that's yeah, something that well, always... we, we are open um 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, Thursday the 13th through Sunday the 16th. And I encourage, you know, if you live here, take advantage of in the incredible public transportation that we do have. Um, leave your car at home, take the streetcar, take the bus, take the ferry. I live on the West Bank. And I think the best way to get into French Quarter Festival is to walk or drive to the ferry terminal and you get dropped off right in the middle of the event. Um, but of course, we also partner with Blue Bikes. If you haven't used those, you know, they've got bikes all over the city and make it really easy to get, uh, you know, right into the thick of things here in the French Quarter. If and of course, I like drive, those vehicles that pe pedal you around. That's my favorite. That's oh, right, the pedicabs. <laughs> That's good right. Well, sometimes, you know, if you if you park your car close, they can help you get there. Um, but there's also ample parking. So, you know, we have... Um, Where's the parking? Are you speaking like up by the river or... Sure, yeah, there is um, parking all along the river. And we have an NOPD detail uh, that helps work with those parking lots and they'll make sure to funnel cars in until they're full. But if you've, you've got a canal um, place and you've got all of the parking lots from um, really Canal Street all the way to Esplanade along the riverfront. So um, I would say come here early if you plan to park <laughs> and um, take advantage of, of taking the streetcar, taking the bus, do ride share. I always recommend if you take a ride share or a cab, get dropped off at Canal Street or Esplanade and walk in. Um, you know, the French Quarter gets awfully busy and we work with NOPD to um, ensure that once we get to a certain level of pedestrian traffic, we, we close off those interior streets. So um, the best thing to do is, um, you know, take your car or your ride share uh, to one of those drop-off points um, so you don't get stuck in traffic. Excuse me one second, I'm gonna have to pause. Hey guys, you cannot talk during the Zooms, sorry. So um, finally, I think um, I, I just wanna ask one last question really, and that is, um, is there some big surprise that you can uh, hint at for us that, is going to happen or take place that we want to just kind of, you know, give a little secret nudge for? 
Well, the 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 big surprise was uh, the fireworks and the the parade Bye. on our opening day. Um, hopefully, we've put out all of the information that um, everybody needs to be able to explore the festival. You can check out our cubes. We've got um, an insert printed in the gambit, so you can check okay. out yeah. the gambit. You can go to frenchquarterfestival.org. You can download our free app. Um, and so we'll we'll have plenty of information for um, for everybody to to see what all you can explore. But you know we've got a couple of uh, fun installations this year. So um, in honor of our 40th anniversary, um, we've got the the Gateway to Festival. There's a really great installation on the top of Oscar Dunn Park. Um, and if you're not familiar with Oscar Dunn Park, um, that is the uh, recent really recently renamed space um, across from Jackson Square. It used to be Washington Artillery and of course oh, okay. it's been yeah. renamed Oscar Dunn Park. But it sits right between Jackson Square and uh, the riverfront. We'll have the Pan American Life Insurance stage there right on the riverfront from Friday uh, through Sunday. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a fun it's photo. A spot. There's it really is. Yeah, there's opportunities to learn about our history, um, and there's a really fun photo booth, which um, I will uh, definitely encourage folks to check out and mark the occasion with. It just sounds so great, and it is so great, and um, I love that it was kind of um, a residual of the World's Fair. A lot of people don't give the World's Fair the credit it deserves for the residual uses that most fairs have never been able to achieve. We we achieved so much with the opening up of the riverfront and with an opening up of the CBD for that matter, the warehouse district. Um, I was one of the founders of the Contemporary Arts Center and um, we definitely appreciate seeing uh, the World's Fair really capitalize on something that we got started in the arts district, but then extended all the way to the riverfront. And so then into the French Quarter, and, um, you know, it's just it just makes the French Quarter uh, realize it's um, it's true opportunity uh, to, to be, as you say, something for everybody and, and something for all the family. So thank you so much, really. For, for having me. I hope to see you out there this weekend. Um, I may. Um, I've got a husband who's been having some health issues after an accident that we're kind of nursing along. Um, so we'll, we'll see if I can um, reel him out there and get him to enjoy it because he is definitely improving. And I know a little bit of music will definitely contribute to that. And that's another thing, I guess I, you, I have to uh, mention, there is um, the, the ability for people with um, disabilities to enjoy the festival. It's we do. We have one. an access center, um, and that is located right by the Canal Street entrance. Um, so, if you need information in terms of accessibility, you know most of our stages are small and on city streets, so it should be um, easily accessible. But there are some um, ADA viewing platforms and spaces, especially in front of those large stages. Um, and there's also a Culture City uh, Save vehicle, which is a place for um, anybody who has any kind of sensory needs. You know, we know that festivals are crowded, they're loud, they can be very overwhelming. And so um, 
for our children or adults that may have sensory needs. It's a quiet space. It's a soundproof space where you can chill out and relax. And you want to make yeah. sure the festival is accessible uh, for everyone. Emily Madera, thank you so much for what you do and for this event in and of itself and um, other things that you do throughout the year. And um, I hope it's a blast, especially your 40th. And so keep it, keep on keeping on. <laughs> thank you. Looking exactly. forward to seeing you out there, Jean. I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much for your time. Jordan is with me. He is, uh, are you the oldest son? No, I have an older brother who's the junior, Edward Jr. A lot of people, you know, call my dad kid all the time. They think that's his first name. But his first, his real name is Edward Lee Jordan. Edward Lee. Is anybody <laughs> called Jordan? <laughs> Either Edward or Lee? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Kent is the uh, son of Kid Jordan, uh, who uh, my husband would say is um, uh, not gone, just invisible. <laughs> um, but he, you know, people really do live with us, within us. And I mean, to this day, I lost my parents, you know, decades ago. Um, but I still think about them on a weekly basis. I mean, it may not be every day anymore, but it's still very frequent. And um, luckily, we had space in this house that we bought in the 70s for a ridiculous price, low. <laughs> and, and, and I was able to um, house my mother in her last years here. So we were able to spend a lot of time with her to the point where even though she had some dementia and um, she still remembered me until the day she died. So that was a gift, uh, a special gift. But um, kids passing is, um, it's a real bellwether for um, our musical community because he by far was the leading, I uh, will say, out musician town. <laughs> he was the one that told me that um, in New Orleans, as much as we are linked to our legacies and our traditions, uh, we still innovate. And um, Kid has always been one of the leading innovators in the city. Um, that's how I remember him. Now you, I remember from uh, playing for my first dance classes at Tulane when I first got here and I thought I was going to continue my dance not career so much as just engagement and I didn't because um you know once I got to street dancing that kind of um <laughs> that took the place of the more formal uh, approach uh, to right. for me but I enjoyed um having you uh, playing for those um uh, work sessions that we had at Tulane. That was a that was a treat. So Thank I have fond memories of both you and Kid. You know, <laughs> Kevin and I both did a lot of events with Kid, and the one that uh, we favor that Tannen was talking about just recently, of course, and and that was his um, uh, his his um, approach to uh, um, 
the idea of the of the walking band, let's say, because his walking group that he created for the anniversary of, of the Contemporary Arts Center. And I don't remember which one it was, to be honest. I think it was the 30th or the 40th. And it was also on the occasion of Tannen's one-man show at the CAC. He did this, um, which I didn't even know until just recently, Tannen pointed out to me that the, the musical piece that he created for the walking group uh, that did an avant-garde walking group right was based on CAC, the initials of the <laughs> So the musical was CAC. Um, so again, you know, innovation, people don't realize, I think, as much as they do the, our, our engagement of our traditions is very much a part of the musical um, oeuvre uh, of, of, of people in our city. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, to the degree by which, you know, we think about what's, you know, what innovation really means. Um, because that has to be contextualized. And so basically, you know, speaking to what you just finished describing with, you know, with Bob's um, one man show, uh, you call him Tannen, so I'm gonna call him Tannen, just for this interview. <laughs> I've always called him Bob. Um, you know, you you try to find ways by which to link a person's personality to what they're doing. And I think my father um, always was trying to find new ways, um, and not necessarily innovative ways, just, you know, new ways of thinking about music and contextualizing that. And so putting it in a, a walking band, and I'm, I'm assuming it was a marching band, not just necessarily a walking band. I don't know if they walked around the CAC or if they walked around the block. They walked around the neighborhood. Uh, they walked right? around the neighborhood. Okay, so marching band, right? So you call it a, a walking band versus a marching band. Um, yeah, so I can I can, I can, can see that because basically you, you still have that, um, which we understood understand from New Orleans, having that marching band concept, but now, you know, the music is different. And I'm I'm sure it wasn't, and maybe, you know, a lot of people don't know my dad is kind of in a way a traditionalist because he wrote a lot of traditional type tunes like Kid Jordan's Second Line and some other things that other bands have recorded. But, you know, he was always trying to see how he could fit his concepts uh, into um, either older models or newer models of, of, of music making or compositionally, right? And so, you know, you you, you kind of take the, the the good with the bad. <laughs> oh well, I don't know about the bad part, but <clears throat> certainly, um, I mean, he, he, when when you read the um, writing about him in print in in uh -huh. the outfit, um, and and you saw the total range of music that he dealt with. Mm -hmm. Everything from Broadway music, I'll never forget the shock I had learning that he been, had been playing in, in the uh, orchestra pits of, of, of um, the Sanger. Know, Broadway music and the Sanger, right? Yeah, sure. um, you know, I say, what, Kid Jordan of all people? <laughs> and so, you know, that's always been, not always, but that has been true of a lot of musicians in the city, not to the extent uh, 
that uh, your dad took it. I mean, he really, um, he, he, his music was just playing cold out. It was very out and, 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 and something that I preferred. I grew right. up with, yeah, I mean, I grew up with jazz in, in New York as a right, kid. Well. I, I would um, try to fall asleep. I always had problems sleeping and I would try to fall asleep to Symphony Sid. I don't know yeah. if you ever heard Symphony Sid. But, okay, well, he was a DJ that played jazz. And it would be all kinds of, of, of music. So again, you got that exposure to a very wide range of, of music. So I, I craved whatever was different and new. And, and, and so I had a, a total allegiance um, to, your, to your dad's music. And yeah. personality-wise, he was so, to me, open, engaging, and kind of, um, I guess I would have to use the word flexible, which is kind of a, a dull word for his, um, the, the flexibility of um, genres of music and life. Right. I think that, I think that's I think that's the, I think you picked the right word, right? Because you have to be very flexible. Like for instance, what you said, I mean, to play in a Broadway show, and and it's just not playing in a Broadway show because because you have to understand musicians who play in Broadway shows, they play multiple instruments. If you're a woodwind player like my dad, for instance, if you play baritone sax, then he had to play bar he may have to play bass clarinet as well. He may have to play piccolo. He may have to play some flute. If he was playing alto, he definitely had to play clarinet, definitely had to play flute and some other instruments, oboe even, right? So he was very, very, very flexible in terms of saying, okay, well, I have my music. You know, if he was working with a lot of people, I don't know, my dad was very close to Aretha Franklin. And so whenever Aretha Franklin came in town, yeah, yeah Aretha would call him and he put the band together or her, you know, she wouldn't call him personally, but her musical director would call my dad he put the band together for Aretha. And I had the privilege of, of actually being in one of those bands, um, you know, performing when I first graduated from school to meet him as Franklin. Now Ray Charles, yes, Frank Sinatra, Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> I mean, he would put not only the, the woodwinds, but the strings. So that was part of his, you know, upbringing. I mean, he learned how to read music. That was one of his things that he really tried to impress upon his students. If you learn how to read music, if you, you know, you have your fundamentals together, you can do anything you want. So that term that you use flexibility is really appropriate because a lot of musicians, as you know, they might be great improvisers, but very poor readers. So they can't play in a Broadway show. So they may lose an opportunity to play different types of music or different styles of music, right? So that was really, that was really an important aspect of his education. And he really believed that you can talk to any of his students, fundamentals were really important learn to read, learn your instrument. And then after that, if you wanted to play country Western, rock and roll, he didn't care, avant-garde, you know, just have your fundamentals together. And that way you can do anything you want. How do you think, um, has he talked about how he did choose that path uh, personally as um, really taking uh, his music out to the edges of the avant-garde? Where did that come from? Well, that came from a place, because you have to understand, um, whereas other musics might take, for instance, classical music, might take hundreds of years to evolve. Jazz didn't really take a long time. You know, there's a really short stretch, for instance, from, let's say, um, John Coltrane, I mean, from Charlie Parker to John Coltrane, 
or from Louis Armstrong to Charlie Parker. Mm. You know, those those evolutions didn't happen in terms of like, say, for instance, the evolution that, that had to take place between Bach and Brahms, right? That was a different type of evolution, uh, musical evolution. So the evolutions in jazz was like really, really sharp. You know, you have to think about, you know, with Coltrane and Miles Davis and all that Coleman and those guys were doing after Louis Armstrong and some other people, um, you know, Duke Ellington. It was always there, but the core of innovation in jazz music was really, really, really sharp. Really, really sharp. Uh, even if you think about, you know, what Miles Davis was playing in the 50s and then when he started playing in the 70s and the 60s, right? Yeah. And so I think um, um, there was a lot of influences in terms of, I know he was very influenced by Arnett Coleman. Um, and he wasn't the only one in New Orleans who was influenced by Arnett Coleman. Uh, Ellis Marcellus and Howard Baptiste were very much influenced by Arnett Coleman. In fact, um, one of our great drummers from New Orleans, Ed Blackwell, you know, played in Arnett Coleman's, you know, first iterations of his music. So it was just, I think, one of those things where, um, you know, he was very, very influenced by obviously Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, but there was uh, the difference in what Arnett Coleman was trying to do and some other people along with Arnett Coleman, like uh, Eric Dolphy, right? When John Coltrane uh, had Eric Dolphy playing in this band. And a lot of people don't really understand this about my father. He was really an alto player before he really, really started playing tennis saxophone. Uh -oh. That was his thing. He played alto for a long time, but that tennis saxophone, he always says, always kind of creeps in, you know, if you're a saxophone player. And it's it's really interesting because if you're an alto player, you're going to remain alto saxophone. If you're a tenor player, you're going to remain tenor. You know, you have to sort of like pick and choose, right? And so he kind of picked the tenor saxophone later in his development, which I find to be interesting. Why, and, why, do, you, why do you say you have to pick and choose? Well, because in terms of the voice, right? If you listen to, you know, great tenor players or great alto players, there's something about the way they play those instruments in particular. Like, in other words, I can't imagine Cannibal Adderley playing tenor saxophone, right? <laughs> because you hear all these great alto solos and the way he played the alto saxophone, just like I can't imagine Sonny Rollins playing alto saxophone. Hmm. Now, there are recordings with John Coltrane, obviously, because he started on alto and he switched to tenor saxophone a little bit earlier. Right. And he still played alto sometimes. Uh, there's a famous recording with him playing with Gene Ammons where he's playing alto saxophone on the recordings. But he sounds like he's playing tenor. You know, it's, it's really interesting. So it, in terms of like finding your voice, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in terms of finding your own personal voice, because the instruments obviously have their own, um, you know, what we call in music, uh, tessituras, right, in terms of how they speak within their own, you know, you know, the way they're physically made. So, you know, it's really interesting. You know, you find somebody like, for instance, Donald Harrison. I've known Donald all my, all my life. I've only heard him play, maybe play tennis saxophone like one or two times, but, uh, you know, he never really, you know, when I hear him, I hear him play his alto and I know it's him. So it's just one of those things. So um, you've talked, you've just reeled off the names of a lot of the monsters of the jazz history of America. In the, of <laughs> <laughs> the question I have, because um, I've, I've kind of, um, I feel like I've drifted a little bit away from music. I mean, I go in and out of different phases in, in my career, right. uh, much like uh, people go in and out of phases with their instruments, maybe, uh -huh. you know, 
I've been focused uh, on music. I've been focused on the visual arts. I've been focused on events. Mm -hmm. and, and of late, I've been a little bit more, um, for one thing, music requires going out at night. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I don't do that as much as I used to. I, can't, <clears throat> I get kind of uh, wasted by the end of the uh, normal working hours of the professional class, let's say. Right. And, so um, I, I don't know as much about what's happening now as I used to know when I was say, doing the dewdrop at the CAC. Uh -huh. Your dad was one of the participants and Alvin Batiste was um, a, a lot of the, the cats that you just mentioned. Even some of the, the big players from Chicago played the dewdrop because what would happen is at first, when I went to quit with the idea of doing it, he said, ah, oh, you can't do that. No one's going to go, blah, blah, blah. And I just said, there's nothing like telling me no. no. <laughs> that's like a that's like an invitation. Come on in, Gene. So um, I did it. I did it. And uh, it, it went on for quite a few years until they basically, the Jazz Fest, started doing all their evening programming. And, and that's the behemoth. They had a lot more resources than I did. So I kind of backed away. But... It was an exhilarating and incredible time period for me. Um, and it, it definitely um, stimulated a lot of, of uh, thinking about how to deal with the culture of New Orleans in, in different ways. But um, what's going on now? That's what I don't really understand. Some of the players that I'm familiar with who played the Dewdrops, uh, you know, a Johnny Vodakovich, a Leo Nocentelli who's back, and, and those, those cats, I know those guys, and I know they're still out there, but I don't know much about the younger ones coming up and, and, and the trends in jazz. That it, jazz to me is sounding a little too familiar. Oh, okay. Well, that will- I, I, That's gotta be wrong. So I, because I, again, I just, there's, I know there's stuff out there that I'm just not, don't know about. So tell me, give me a little bit of a hint from your perspective of um, what the jazz scene in general is, but in New Orleans is? Well, what we need to do then is, if, if you want to uh, speak to that nature of what's going on, um, I think Mark Andreessen, do you know who he is? He's a, a, venture, his name. Cap a venture capitalist. He's what? He, he's a venture capitalist. You know, an equity guy, he funds all of these different, I think he was like one of the first investors in like say um uh browsers, and then he went from browsers to you know software companies, that kind of thing. Anyway, he you know he funds things, but he has this term that is kind of apropos for a lot of things. You know, he says that software eats the world. <laughs> you know, where eats the world. It's software eats the world. Basically, what he's saying is, you know, you you remember how you used to have um, a, a program you put in your computer and it was that. And then the next thing is, you know, things move to quote unquote the cloud, right? Or you might have whatever. And or now it's, we're coming it's up just, on the AI world, which is AI world. Here. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And it's real, right? And so basically what he's speaking to is the commoditization of, of a lot of things. And I was listening to this guy yesterday. It was kind of interesting, you know. Um, he was talking about how music now is a commodity. 
in terms of how we think about music, you know, with streaming services, right? So a lot of what you probably are speaking to, Gene, is the fact that, you know, you have Apple Music, you have the kids are into Spotify or Napster, right? You have this kind of thing where my daughter and I was talking the other day, you know, we were talking about a John Coltrane album and I was trying to mention to her, you know, when I was growing up with that album, uh, Giant Steps, because my dad used to play that album quite a bit when we were young, you'd have the liner notes. And so you knew who the musicians were, you knew where it was recorded, you knew who the producer was, you knew where the, where the song was mastered, right? You had all of these these things that really gave time and place to the music. And what you're addressing is inwardly, you feel like when I, what I'm sensing or, or what you're hinting at in, a, in an interesting way is that there's no time and place for things. And that's the reason why you, th you said things feel familiar because, you know, it seems like nothing really moves, right? That's and, kind of what I was saying in a nice way, yeah. Yeah, in a nice way. <laughs> and it's true. Right. Because uh, musicians, a lot of musicians now, um, you know, especially the younger ones, they learn a lot of things in schools. And um, that curriculum can be kind of codified anywhere you go, whether you're in New York, whether you're in California, whether you're in Texas, whether you're in Oklahoma, for that matter. Right. And so a lot of kids are learning this music from books They're learning it from, you know, obviously recordings. They know about who the the giants of the music are like Monk and Ellington and those types of you know people, Coltrane, obviously. But what they're not really getting is a sense of place. I mean, I was fortunate because in my development, I mean, I started obviously with my father. I went from my father to Ellis Marcellus, you know, another, I mean, great, great musician I learned a lot from. And from there, you know, I went to school, Eastman School, um, music, met a lot of great musicians there. Uh, got a chance to play with Elvin Jones, who was the drummer with John Coltrane for a, long, for a long time. So I had sort of like the formal education of school, but also had the, the informal education of playing at Lou and Charlie's, <laughs> your friend Charlie Baring's club, right? Or playing with my dad or playing with Elvin Jones. And so those things kind of give you that place, that you know sense of familiarity that, you, that these younger players are not really tapping into. And so consequently, what they're doing is, and I was speaking to this uh, yesterday uh, with some musicians, is that they're tapping into what they know, right? Because it's kind of hard to say, okay, well, you know, did you play with this person? Did you learn this? Blah, 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 whatever you have you. And they're just playing their own music, right? They're playing what they feel that they need to play. They're recording their own music, right? Because now, you know, we were talking earlier about the technological innovations it's a lot easier, right? Like what we're doing right now. I mean, you know, we could, you could have been in Australia for this fact, we could be doing a Zoom, right? Yeah. So technology has made a lot of things a lot more accessible. It's made a lot more efficient, but has it made things better? And that's the thing that we are kind of on the, the edge of, right? Because now, because of the efficiencies of recordings and you can get something out in two days if you want, right? It's, it's like drinking from a water, you know, like a fire hybrid. There's so much information. And so music now is being treated like um, any other commodity, right? It's just there. So you, in a, in, a, in a way, you have to sort of like be the 
the term uh, uh, Larry David <laughs> terminology, the master of your domain. <laughs> much talent in our creative city. It's just endless. And we still have to fight for people to recognize the economic impact of all this, but we'll just keep doing that. Um, this is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations. Talk to you next week. 
all right, I close is good enough. So hopefully that worked. And I'm going to close it. I was a little test to make sure I could get on. Thank you.